Heads up, small business leaders, you're listening to My Quest for the Best, where published experts share relevant stories for inspiration and tools for transformation to unlock your growth potential. We release a new episode every week to help you navigate your managing and leadership challenges, so subscribe to stay up to date. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and more for your convenience. Let's dive into this week's episode. Are you concerned with engaging your prospects and customers so that they know more about the useful, if not exciting, solutions you offer? and find it puzzling that more people who need what you have to offer don't respond to your invitations. Welcome to the club, and one of the top issues that college athletic directors struggle with these days. Fortunately, my next guest, Zach Logsdon, author of Winning is Not a Strategy, has helped ADs break the code on this issue so that more alumni, their families, and other fans show up in the stands to get the full experience of the game. There are lessons for all small business leaders on audience analysis, segmentation messaging, and professional relationship building. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Zach Logsdon, author of Winning is Not a Strategy, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Zach Logsdon. He's the CEO and founder of Old Hat, a strategic marketing company specializing in the sports and entertainment industry. Zach has led Old Hat for more than 15 years, having grown it from one employee with one client to employing of dozens of people and partnering with major athletic programs nationally. Over the past two decades, he's worked with more than 150 sports and entertainment organizations to help drive attendance at their events and venues and improve the experience for fans and attendees. Based in Norman, Oklahoma, Zach is here to talk with us about his latest book, Winning is Not a Strategy, a game-changing approach to driving attendance. It's a guide for those charged with reversing the trend of declining attendance at sporting events. Welcome, Zach. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's a pleasure. I, I really like the whole idea of approaching sports as a business and introducing some of the ideas that have helped make a difference in other fields into the area of athletics. When you were growing up, Zach, who's someone, maybe a coach, a teacher, a family member, who influenced or inspired you? Um, Bill, I, I had so many people growing up that were inspirations to me, and you mentioned coaches, and, and uh, my first book uh, actually references the the uh, importance of coaches, whether it's Little League or high school or whenever it is that, that coaches have in your life. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, there, there were so many of, of those types of people that influenced me heavily. However, uh, if I got to pick uh, a person or a pair of people that, that influenced me most, it had to be my parents. Both of them were entrepreneurs, business owners, my, my father, my my entire life. Um, I, I kind of uh, watched him and what he did. It owned numerous businesses, bought and sold and, and ran things. My mother owned a flower shop from the time I was in kindergarten all through uh, when I was in high school. So watching the two of them uh, the satisfaction and also, you know, the, the, the tough times, it, it was just, that was always something I aspired to. And obviously, um, probably had a little, um, genetics in me that, uh, that pushed me toward uh, entrepreneurship, but, uh, very inspirational, both of them and, and, in watching what they did and what they accomplished, uh, and what they fought through to achieve what they achieved. So is one of the lessons that you would take away from Zach 
that, Zach, is that perseverance matters? Or what is it that, that you look at the journey that they took as you were growing up that left a, a lasting impression on you? I think it was you know, the creativity more than anything. Um, uh, my, my father especially was very creative in the ways that um, he he sought out businesses. And I was always asking him, you know, he, he would talk about buying things and selling things and uh, unique ways to finance things. And though though my primary business is old hat, I you know I have other investments and in, in real estate and things and finding creative ways to make money and to, to achieve business success. And also, you know, just taking things and building them. My, my favorite, my favorite thing to do is, is build things, fix things. Uh, so if you have a, a business and, and trying new things to help turn it around, uh, something that uh, I learned a lot growing up and it's, it, you know, I don't have a lot of hobbies outside of work. My favorite, my hobby is, uh, is doing things business related because that's where I derive the greatest satisfaction, but all goes back to being creative in the way you approach things. Well, there's no shortage of opportunities to apply creative problem solving while running a business, is there? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. You got to get creative almost every day when you're, in, you're the one in charge. So with the work that you do today, what's the, the biggest problem that athletic directors and administrators you work with struggle with specifically? And let me just make a note here. We're going to talk about athletic directors as the stakeholders or, or one of the key contact points, and we'll just routinely refer to them as ADs. Perfect. Yeah, the, the, the athletics industry as a whole is, is facing a, a, a massive decline and a steady decline in attendance. It's, it's due to the experience from watching at home. You know, you, why would you go to 7-Eleven to get, to get a candy bar if you got a candy bar at home that tastes just as good and you don't have to get out to to do it. You wouldn't. You'd eat what you have at home. So the same thing applies to athletics. For many, many years, more than half a century, the easiest and best way to uh, take in a sporting event for the millions and millions of people that uh, love athletics uh, is to attend it. You got to go in order to have the best view. You got to go to have the best experience. When I was growing up, I'm sure you remember this as well, the events weren't on TV. It was it certainly wasn't guaranteed that every game would be on TV. Uh, you had to listen to it on the radio a lot of times, or if it was on TV, it was a small, third, you know, twenty-five inch screen that what didn't offer high definition. But now, not only uh, is the experience just as good at home; in many cases, it's better. It's free for one. The food is cheaper. The the seats are more comfortable, and you have you have a much better view of the game. You know, you can see the the, the number and the name on the back of every jersey. Whereas if you're sitting in the 300 section at the stadium or the arena, you can't see very well at all. The experience has changed so much to the point where you don't have to go. Not only can you watch it from home, you can watch it from anywhere in the world. You can be at the mall. You can be at your kids' sporting events. You can be anywhere and have a high-definition feed of the game in your in the palm of your hand. That is the major, if not the only reason uh, that attendance is, is dropping so rapidly. So let me play devil's advocate here. What do we lose if we just watch things only by TV or phone or, you know, in our living room? Why not just go all that way? Yeah, it, you're like, well, I'll watch it at home. It's, it's way easier. And you don't think about what you're losing. You know, if you think about, I don't know if you grew up going, going to sporting events, Bill, but, you know, I, I grew up going with my dad as often as possible, driving the hour from Guthrie, Oklahoma to Norman, Oklahoma, and watching OU football games or Oklahoma basketball games. And it was those moments 
sitting next to my dad, asking him to explain things, eating eating a hot dog next to him, having three, four hours of uninterrupted time plus the drive time with him as we not only viewed something, but viewed something we were passionate about, something that got us excited, something that connected us, high fives and hugs and excitement. Nothing else gives you that. And you can watch it at home and you can get excited at home, but it's just, it's different. You end up going into the other room. If your kids, you're watching the game uh, and your kids are playing Minecraft in the next room or they're, you know, they're, they're texting the whole time. It's just different. And if you're there, it's again, it's not, it's not only something that you're witnessing uh, where your, your focus is on that one thing and together it's, it's the height of emotion that the sports provides that, that creates a connection that you simply cannot get watching from home or anywhere else and those moments those those exciting times those hours you're spending in the in the stands uh watching these events those are the things you take with you for the rest of your life no no 85 year old man is bragging to his grandchildren or great grandchildren about the time he watched the immaculate reception from from a bar or <laughs> if he was there that's that's an exciting story you don't brag about the times you watched it from home you don't brag about the times you watched it from your phone while you're walking around the mall you brag about being there and and the reason you do that is because it's better and i think it's so easy to forget that and so easy to put that aside for the convenience of of watching from home i totally agree with you both the convenience and the uninterrupted time so much of our time is fractured and split in so many different ways now where i've come down to our family room and my son's had all his friends over and they're watching you know a, a playoff game and they're all on their screens and they're looking at their screens, they're looking up, they're looking at their screens, they're looking up. And it's not the same shared experience as if they get out, get to a stadium to really put aside and dedicate the time to focus on the game and to share what it's like to be there. And they have so much more fun when they're out at a stadium doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're, it's too easy to uh, put yourself in a silo uh, when you're at home and you have those devices. Can't tell you how many times we've walked into a room, my wife and I, and and we have four kids, and all of them are watch. They're they're on the couch. All four of them are on the couch together, all watching something different on their phones. We're like. Stop! Stop doing that. Uh, put put those down and watch something together. Even if you're even if they're staring at a screen, at least do it together yeah. so you can laugh together. Uh, versus everybody being in these silos. It's part of the literally the shared experience. Absolutely. So one shared experience that ads have I read in your book is the statement that you say that so many of them say to you is if we could just start winning attendance would take care of itself. Let's unpack this. Yeah, my, How do you respond to oh that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I heard that for the first time 20 years ago when I started working in, in sports and I took it on face value. I just like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. We win, fans will show up. I've been doing this for, for more than two decades now. And at, it, I got to the point where I was like, wait a second, why, why do marketing departments in sports even exist if we're just relying on a bunch of 20 year olds to do our jobs for us? We dug in and found out that's not even true. Scientifically, it's not even true. I mean, yes, people people want to view a winning team. Talking about college football, if your team's 12 and 0, more people are going to come than if they're 0 and 12. That's just that's how it is. However, long term, if you look at some of the most the winningest conference in in um, college football is the SEC. They're also the the conference that has the low the biggest drop in attendance. We, we've surveyed thousands 
of fans from all across the nation in, in every league, on every level, on every demographic. And you ask, rank your reasons for attending a sporting event. The quality of quality of play on the field and the quality of opponent do not appear at the top of their list. The reason they're showing up is for the experience of attending an event is number one. And number two is the social aspect of attending an event. Because you can see it, you can see the team win at home. You don't have to show up to see the team win. So it, it, it's not just about winning. At the end of the day, even if winning increases attendance, it's not a marketing strategy. Sitting there and waiting for the team to get better. It'd be like if you worked for Ford and you're, you're marketing for Ford Motor Company and you say, well, you know, the, the F-150 isn't very good. So why don't we wait till next year and when it's better, it'll just sell itself. And then we don't have to do anything. But I mean, you, you, so you can't treat you can't treat your product like that, like just waiting for it to get better for it to sell itself. Right. I, I call this a circular limiting belief because it involves no input from someone to influence it. And as you've shown, it really doesn't correlate to statistics. When you look statistically, there are teams that maintain their attendance and they're not necessarily the most winning team. Right. You're talking to a Philadelphia sports fan. <laughs> So we have, <laughs> we have loyalty to teams regardless of their record. There are too many examples of teams that, regardless of the of their record, continue to pack them in. And and, and obviously there are, there are plenty of examples of teams that uh, that that aren't doing so well and attendance drops and they start doing well and, and attendance goes back up. But that doesn't mean that has to be the rule. The, you know, you look at the Chicago Cubs or Green Bay Packers or the Pittsburgh Steelers or all, all of these teams out there. And they're endless on the list of minor league teams that have great attendance. And, and the product on the field is sometimes great and sometimes it's terrible and their attendance is unaffected. Let's just debunk one more myth before we go into some of the ways to address that. Mm -hmm. Some teams or some athletic departments who have a lot of resources are probably tempted to say, gosh, if we just paid our coaches or invested more in the weight room, that would bring about more fan loyalty. Has any of your research borne that out? It, it is connected. You know, you, you, the, the better your coach, the better your team, the better uh, your facilities, the more you can recruit uh, the, the top-notch athletes and, uh, and the better your team. But, but at the end of the day, no. It, I mean, because, that, because all that does is, is go back to, to winning. It promotes winning. And by design uh, of what we're talking about, half the teams at least are going to lose. Right. On any given day, you have 16 teams playing. Eight are going to win. Eight are going to lose. It's a no-sum game. Exactly. So you can't – I mean, if that's, if, that's, if that's our product, then we have a 50-50 shot at, at uh, putting ourselves in a position to have a bad product if that's what we're defining as our product. So, uh, you know, it, no, it, it, it's about far more than who your coach is. Uh, programs outlive coaches. Programs outlive facilities. It does all work together. Uh, we can't rely on that any more than we can rely rely on, uh, again, the, the 18 to 25-year-olds, if we're talking about the pros that, that are out. We have zero control over that. Uh, we, we can't rely on that to do, to do our marketing for us. Was the 25-year-olds playing in college leagues from international schools? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. So there are dangers to staying stuck at this level of thinking. What do you do to introduce people to new ways of thinking to help them out of this so that it could actually influence the outcomes that they're looking to affect. You have to change what we've been taught for years and years, decades and decades about what 
our product is, what sports is, how to market it. We've been, we've gotten spoiled in the sports industry. Again, back to the idea of to show up in order to consume our product. We don't have to show up anymore. So we have to we actually have to market our product like it's a product versus uh, treating it like it's a privilege to consume. I've said that numerous times, and I think I say in my book, I've said in numerous speeches, we've treated athletic events as if it's a privilege to be there for fans. It's not a privilege to be there anymore. Uh, you, so you have to market it the same way as we market any product. And sports has failed to do so for many, many years. We've just, we publish the schedule, just here where you buy tickets, and we expect people to, to show up. The problem is they don't want to come anymore. So we have to find the unique things about our product. We have to find the unique things about our market. Just like every pro- every corporate product out there, consumer product out there, they do this. They go through this process of what is unique about our product? What is unique about our market? Who's our demographic? Okay, how do we line that up? How do we create a map that, that tells them about our product in a way that makes them want to consume it? Because that's where we're at now. We're to the point where, where fans no longer want to consume our product, certainly don't want to consume it from uh, stadiums. They want to consume it from home. So how how do we do that? And we have to get more uh, strategic. There's been little to no strategy behind sports marketing for many, many years. So we got to reverse that. Do you have an example of a team or program that you were able to work with and approach their marketing more strategically so that they got more involvement? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we've worked with over 150 sports teams over the years, over the past three or four is when, when we've really been pioneering this, uh, this idea of being more strategic and have had the great fortune of working with SMU and Colorado State, Virginia Tech, uh, and some you know, Eastern Michigan, some smaller schools in there. A good example, uh, Colorado State, for instance, they have, have it, had a new stadium. Uh, they had a, a huge spike in attendance with the new stadium, uh, and then uh, attendance uh, and, and ticket sales dropped off a little bit after that first season. So we went in and we identified, you know, we did all of our research, all of our surveys, internally, externally, uh, census data research, looked at all of their season ticket data, who's buying, where they're buying, et cetera, and helped them identify areas where they didn't realize that people were buying tickets. We also identified in this example, for some reason, and every area is different, the, the people with the highest highest likelihood uh, of buying tickets were in the sixty to seventy thousand uh, dollar household income range in that area. For some reason, that was the range that was their spe- sweet spot. And then from seventy to a hundred, for some reason, people weren't buying a lot of tickets in that income range. And then in then the plus one hundred, we saw a huge uh, spike again. So we helped them identify areas. Uh, where more people in the Fort Collins, Colorado area, that was the income level. That's you know if that's if that's who's buying your tickets now, that's where you should focus. So that's one tiny part. And then uh, other parts were we we looked at their season ticket data. And if you know sports, you know that you do season tickets, you do single game tickets, and a lot of times you do mini packs. Uh, so you're not buying the whole season; you're buying four games, let's say. Well, we what we found in looking at the data is that. Your propensity to convert a single game ticket purchaser into a season ticket was pretty high. Uh, if your single game tickets, if you're buying it to premier games, people that were buying single game tickets to non-premier games virtually never converted to single game or to season tickets, and people that bought mini packs almost never converted to season ticket purchasers. Huh. So that's interesting. We we take that information. We say okay. All these people are buying single game tickets to your premier games. That's your target. 
If you want to sell more season tickets, that's where you that's where you hit them. Stop trying to convert these mini packs because what we discovered is that's the maximum number of games they're going to commit to. If you're buying four games, that's you're saying four games a year is all I can commit to. And if you're buying tickets to the uh, the non premier games, it's probably because you wanted a cheap ticket. You wanted to go to at least one game, but you're probably not a passionate fan, so you're not gonna you're not gonna convert to a season ticket. So all of those things, it's all that kind of stuff. You got to get so granular and look at the data because data does not lie. And, and and I'm not even I'm not even gotten to the mm-hmm. part about how we you know the marketing, the positioning, the brand of Colorado State football and and what we did there. But it's it's all along the same lines. You have to do the research, then you have to create a strategy and. Only then can you create do creative to, to to actually put out there and try to, to to drive attendance. And for years, again, back to how we were doing things wrong, we we skipped the first two steps and just jumped to creative. Let's let's make something pretty, put it out there in front of fans. It has the schedule on it, and people will show up. And it wasn't working. Well, at least changing the logos within your control. It's not whether you're going to win or lose, mm-hmm, which exactly. is really outside Absolutely, your control. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> And the people listening to this this interview, they're sophisticated in a lot of ways. So I'm going to point out that you talk about market segmentation and introduce this idea of four different types of fans that athletic directors need to think about. New fans, casual fans, diehard fans, Mm -hmm. and fair weather uh, fans. When you talk about this, does it instantly bring a light bulb on for the ADs or is, does it require breaking it down and showing them the data? I think people that work in athletics are smart people. They, they've been doing this for years and I don't mean to insinuate for one second that I know more than these directors of marketing at these universities or athletic organizations, but they get so bogged down uh, in the day to day that they, it's, it's uh, what is the line? It's, it's, easier to read the ingredients from uh, from outside the bottle than inside the bottle and and we we are very much on the outside able to see how things work and don't work from organizations all over the country and, and so it allows us to do things better your question though was does a does a light click on i think in, in most cases what i've seen is they read the book they see me talk or see my presentations and, and they do you can almost see like oh yeah Okay, that makes a lot of sense, and, and the light does the switch does flip for them because they're so bogged down they they have not been able to look at it from that perspective. But it makes sense because I mean it's scientific; it's hard to argue with. And, and fortunately, uh, they've been very welcoming of the idea and excited about the idea of, of taking a more scientific and strategic approach. You you mentioned the the four types of fans. Most of uh, sports marketing has been focused on those diehard fans, those fans that are going to come no matter what. Uh, it's those casual fans that are choosing to sit on the couch that aren't going to be appealed to from that highly emotional style of marketing that most uh, athletics organizations employ. So do you find that sharing more details of the game, maybe highlights on video online, sharing things on Instagram, is social media something that helps some of these fans that aren't the diehard fans get more involved so that it makes it more likely that they'll show up in person. The jury is out on social media in, in, in regards to sports marketing, in, in my mind, because most of your followers uh, are going to be those diehard fans. And most of the people that are following you on Instagram, following you on Facebook, Twitter, etc., are those fans that are, that are showing up. They're already passionate about your program. It's the fans that aren't following you on social media that you need to be appealing to. Let's drill down on that. What's an example of a way that you've been able to segment out and said, okay, here's a group of casual fans or new fans. How do we get them 
to be more engaged. What have you found that works? And what's one thing that you found that you're pretty certain doesn't work? Well, what doesn't work is the highly emotional uh, marketing tactics. Two things. One, those only appeal to the diehard fans. Two, everybody has emotion. Every sports team has dunks and uh, quarterback sacks and touchdown passes. Doesn't matter how good or bad you are. You highlight that kind of stuff in your marketing. And well, so what? I can see that at the high school game. I can see that on TV. Everybody's got that. So what sets you apart? And now I've forgotten your question, Bill. So that's a great answer to what doesn't work because people have a wide area of choices as to where they could find that in other places. But what What's one thing that does work in a game? So what does work? Great example at SMU. We were engaged to work with them uh, on a, on a uh, overall, you know, for the whole athletics organization uh, marketing campaign. And we got down there, and this is a great example of marketing to the wrong people. For years, they that we we and we were a part of it. We hadn't done the research. We hadn't created the strategy. We were we were trying to appeal to uh, their alumni base and get people out to games. Well, their alumni base. One, there are only forty thousand living alumni in the Dallas area. And two, they were all very, very wealthy. If they were going to come, they wanted to be in the club seats or the suites. They didn't want to sit in the cheap seats on the east side of the stadium because it's very much of a C and B scene, the elite area. The people that were going to be able to – they would sit in the bleacher seats or the families, middle income people, the people that love football that were – that there are plenty of in that area, but they didn't feel like they were even invited to be a part of the SMU football game day experience. So we developed a campaign around going to the non-alumni, because again, alumni are gonna show up, uh, the diehards are gonna show up no matter what. Let's find those pockets of people that can that are looking for an inexpensive way to spend the afternoon. SMU offers a great, great family uh, environment. The tickets are inexpensive. The stadium is beautiful. The tailgating experience is amazing. But if you hadn't gone before, you had no idea that it even existed. You might live a quarter mile from the stadium and have no idea because nobody ever invited you to come. So it's getting out there and getting in front of those people that aren't following you on social media, that don't feel like they're a part of your program, inviting them. And so in that situation, uh, it wasn't about engaging alumni, old fans. Uh, it was about uh, appealing to people that had zero connection to SMU, that just wanted to, to watch a football game because they have big time football there, watch a football game, inexpensive afternoon, and, and a great place to take their kids for the day. I'm just going to shout out to everyone who's listening on my quest for the best, thinking about who are the overlooked segments of your market. Here's a group that SMU had overlooked, and, they, and when they were asked, they responded that they didn't feel invited. And I think there's a really important lesson there for everyone who's running a small business to think about who are the people who can and want to use your services and buy your products, and they just don't feel like you've connected with them. Those are the people that need to be reached out to, addressed, in order to help them take the steps to becoming more engaged and active in your business. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So, Zach, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I sure am. Absolutely. Let's do it. When you think about starting your day, what are two or three of the key components of your routine for daily success? Get up as early as I can afford to do so. So when I have, the, when I have to take the kids to school, it's a little bit later, but uh, otherwise I, I try to get to the office as early as possible. And how early is early? 
try to be here on those on, on those weeks as early as about seven o'clock before everybody else gets here because once people get here, I can, it doesn't seem like I can get anything done. Because that allows you to have undistracted time to focus on your priorities, right? Exactly, and and, and set my day. Because if I show up at the same time everybody else, I, I haven't been able to make my list, get through my emails, get through voicemails, et cetera, and really make my list for the day and plan for my day. What's the most important question you want to ask during a hiring interview for someone who has management responsibilities for your company? I don't necessarily have a singular question. I have a whole lot of little things that I do. I've talked about it a lot in different platforms, but you, I, I always schedule interviews very early in the morning because I want them to be on to see if they can be on time. I have very uh, strict list of instructions when when people are applying for jobs, uh, and, and it's those management positions to, to see if they can follow directions, be on time, etc. I, I, I do so much before they even walk in the door. Do you have a, a particular tool or system that you use for staying on track and productive? <laughs> um, I, uh, I I suffer a lot. I, I don't know if this is a, a typical CEO or, or entrepreneur thing. I I suffer from from a, a extreme lack of organization. It is I have a, a lot of ADD and I'm all over the place. My go-to and something I've been using for 20 years now in my career, probably longer, is a pencil and a piece of paper. That is the, the best thing I've ever found, and I've tried, and we have project management system here. We have, I have all kinds of digital tools and calendars, and et cetera, but it, I find that if I write it down on a piece of paper next to my uh, computer mouse, it's, it's much more likely to get done and uh, keep me organized than anything else I've ever found. All right, so that was my next question. Which end of the pencil do you find most useful? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that's why I use a pencil. I, I do not like pens because I like to be able to erase. I make a lot of mistakes, and that is uh, the fact that I use a pencil is a pretty good indication of how many mistakes I make. Just, just being able to back up and undo something I've done, that's important to me. So using, using both ends of the pencil quite a bit. Getting back to the book, for larger schools, sponsors play a big role. What can you tell us about what you've learned from your work with Nike University, about their take and their perspective on what's important and what are the areas to focus on for a mutually rewarding relationship? Good question. I, I, you know, what, I, what I've learned from sponsors is that there's, there's the, the amount of dollars that's going to be pouring into athletic organizations is only going to increase. And as long as we keep fans showing up, the sponsors will pay a premium because you're getting people that are engaged and passionate. It's, it's a, you can tell a lot about the audience that's showing up. So sponsors will pay for that. And that supports uh, so much of what we see in athletics. Sponsorship dollars have, in a lot of cases, trumped ticket sales revenue to the point where some organizations aren't focusing so much on season ticket, on, on, on ticket sales revenue, because so much of that money is coming from sponsors. But we will see a, a drop if we don't get focused on getting fans in the stands because sponsors aren't going to pay for fans, uh, for attention and for those eyes, if the eyes aren't there, we need all of it. We need, you know, we got the, you got to have the season ticket sales revenue. You got to have the sponsorship dollars. You got to have on the college side, you got to have the, the fundraising, the donor dollars that are coming in, but all of it works together and you can't have one without the other. And if we focus too much on the sponsor dollars, those are going to drop the same as we've seen in as, uh, from a drop of attendance. Could you explain the hundred dollar a year, a milestone that like people to buy a hundred dollars worth of apparel each year? You're referring to the idea of if you build that brand with with somebody young, they'll spend at least a hundred dollars. Uh, you know th that that comparison in in my book was about the idea that what Nike would pay 
to to sponsor to take over the sponsorship of a university. You know, it, it changing the name of the University of Oklahoma to Nike University, let's say, with the value of that for for Nike for the rest of your lives because you get four of students being immersed in in Nike. Everything Nike, every uh, you know, they they get handed Nike gear for four years and they learn about Nike for four years and every trash can they pass has the Nike logo on it. The value of that to an organization like Nike is huge because every year for the rest of these people's lives, you have to assume they're going to spend at a minimum of a hundred dollars a year on athletic apparel. That's then that's extremely conservative. It's probably closer to a thousand dollars. But if you look at how many people, how many students are at a university and the value of you know, every year graduating and if they spend $100 a year on athletic apparel, it's most likely going to be Nike because they went to that school sponsored by Nike uh, worth you know, just millions and millions. It, it, it absurd the, the amount of money Nike could make uh, off, off immersing people in their brand for that period. And the students especially because they're the, the most malleable time of their life, most influential time of their lives. That's when they're forming their lifetime brand loyalty. Exactly. And you also pointed out how when they show up, they're having that as part of their experience. They're dressing in Nike in their school colors to go to the games and have these peak emotional experiences. Right. So it's something that you need to look at that perspective that the sponsors are getting enormous value of. And I think the other thing worth pointing out, you know, you and I are both dads of athletes, how easy it is to buy $100 <laughs> worth of athletic gear. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, this is not a stretch. Yeah, exactly. That, that oh, it's that's most conservative. I, I just wanted to make sure that uh, when I was, you know, when I talk about that and when I put it in my book, that nobody said, "Well, gosh, that number's too high. We would never spend that much." But you, you, you spent. I spent a hundred dollars, probably a month in uh, in athletic gear, just for myself. My, bring my kids into the mix. It, it gets way out of hand. The the inherent value that universities have with students that are coming in and and are immersed in that university brand for four years. What we estimate, and I talked to a lot of experts, made that that could be worth as much as fifty million dollars a year per university of a certain size. Yeah, the the, the size of an Alabama or an Oklahoma or a Michigan, something like that. It's just it's just huge the the amount of exposure you get to your athletic brand over the course of those four years with your students. So I'm going to shift gears and ask you about your second book. How long did it take you to write that? Mm -hmm. Once I actually sat down to write it, it, it did, really didn't take long. However, it took three years of research, three years of thinking, three years of giving presentations and, and, and getting the story right in my head before I actually wrote it. So 20 years of experience that led me to that point. So it's really hard to put a put a, you know, a time frame around how long it actually took to write that book because I could easily say it took me 20 years. Once I actually sat down and wrote it, it took me only about three months. Uh, and I wrote a lot of it from about midnight to 3 a.m. when I couldn't sleep because I couldn't get these ideas out of my head. And as any entrepreneur knows, you don't have a whole lot of time during the day while you're sitting at your desk to write a book. You got to find pockets of time here and there. And, and probably everybody listening to this is, is very familiar with the idea of not being able to sleep because they can't get ideas out of their head. And when you were writing it, what would you say is one of the biggest surprises you encountered while writing, winning is not a strategy, that you needed to reconcile or change your own thinking about because the data or the research led you to a different understanding? 
Well, I think it, it was embracing the idea that while I say winning is not a strategy, I would love to be able to prove that winning doesn't affect attendance. You, you have to come to terms with the idea that, that winning does affect attendance and that you typically in a positive way. And, and that's not necessarily the point I'm trying to make in the book to say that winning doesn't affect attendance. What I'm trying to say is, one, there are plenty of examples of, of teams that don't win that have good attendance. And two, it doesn't matter if winning affects attendance. We have zero control as marketers, as athletic directors, as fundraisers. We have zero control over the product on the field. So we have to come up with a strategy for increasing attendance that is completely independent of the product on the field. Sure. There are, what, 4,800 colleges and universities that play athletics in the NCAA, and only one is going to win each um, sports championship. Right. Now, I'm in Philadelphia, so I got to give a shout out to Villanova Wildcats for bringing home the NCAA basketball championship two times in the last six years. And all of the construction that you see around the campus, you just point to that and say, that was due to the the NCAA championships. There's a tremendous outpouring of support when a school wins. However, as you point out, only one school can be the winner. That doesn't mean that everyone else should just, you know, fold up shop and go home. You still can rally support and endorsements and attendance and engagement for every step along the journey. Exactly. Uh, and, and I must do a name drop there because we uh, we did a lot of work for Villanova. It, in fact, around that, that campaign, the capital campaign to raise the money for all that construction you're seeing for, for Old Hat. Zach, I, I really want to thank you so much for contributing to the discussion on my quest for the best. It's an ongoing discussion and you start off talking about the importance of creativity and how that inspired you based upon watching your parents struggle and succeed as entrepreneurs. You bring a lot of passion to athletics because you care so much about the effects of participating and attending athletics live. You talked about the importance of making sure that there's an experience and a social impact that comes from research that people rank as being highly important to them for attending athletics. And it's not necessarily the quality of play on field. You help us understand that you don't want to just show up or, or not address the competition, that you want to make sure that like Colorado State, they could benefit from a spike in attendance the first year. But in order to sustain that, they have to put additional things into, into practice. And it's much, much easier to read the ingredients when you're outside the bottle than inside the bottle. So the benefit of having that outside perspective sure pays off. For these reasons and more, Zach Landon, uh, author of Winning is Not a Strategy, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much, Bill. Hey, Zach, where can we find out more about you, your work, as well as that of your company, Old Hat? Thank you for asking. The, uh, my uh, company website, oldhatcreative.com, lots of case studies there about the multiple teams we've worked with and how we've helped them. Uh, my personal website is zacklogsden.com, and that gives a lot of information about my books, my speaking engagements, find information there. And then uh, my book, Winning is Not a Strategy, is uh, is available on Amazon. And then I have a podcast as well, Winning is Not, it's also called Winning is Not a Strategy. That's available on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. That's fantastic. Zach, thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. 
please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.